What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Deer Vane Podcast, and this episode is specific to our Whitetail series. The Whitetail series contains 27 episodes, 9 for the early season, which are already out, 9 for the pre-rut and rut, and 9 for the late season. This episode is part of our pre-rut and rut portion, and we're going to be talking scrapes, rubs, bedding areas, food plots, pinch points, funnels, um, morning sits, evening sits, all day sits, calling, decoys, all sorts of crazy stuff that happens during the rut and fun tactics, ground hunting, like the spot and stalk. There's just a ton of stuff to go about. This is my favorite part of the season. So I hope you guys really enjoy these episodes. I think we're even going to have 10 or 11 in this just because of the rut's so much fun and there's a lot of people I got to talk to. Also, this Whitetail series is brought to you by Arrow Hunter Saddles and Onyx Hunt. If you're in the market for a tree saddle, definitely check out Arrow Hunter. They make a phenomenal tree saddle. It's extremely comfortable, very adjustable, made right here in the U.S. I've found them to be the most comfortable for me and um, and I just really like them. So if you use the code DVAIN10, you'll get 10% off your order. And uh, they should be actually shipping. They just came out with a new one here in the Mer- the Merlin, uh, but they should be shipping here pretty soon, uh, getting a whole lot more in stock. Of course, during season, almost all the saddle companies are pretty much out because they're so popular now. But definitely check out Arrow Hunter Saddles if you're looking into it. Uh, on a- as far as Onyx Hunt goes, everybody should know about them. You know, they're the they're like the premium GPS mapping app. They give you public and private land boundaries. They give you landowner information. They give you hybrid maps, topo maps, satellite maps, waypoints. They work offline. It's just a phenomenal app. I pretty much find myself using it every day during the hunting season. So again, if you're in the market for a saddle or looking at a GPS app, please check out Arrow Hunter Saddles and uh, Onyx. And without further ado, let's hop into the podcast. And then I think I'm actually going to air this tomorrow morning. So I'm just going to roll this right. Yeah, I'm just going to do the whole edit tonight and roll it right in tomorrow morning. And then next week is Aaron Warbritton, the hunting public. Awesome. Um, yeah. And then I got Southern Ground. And then the next week is Mike Hunsucker from Heartland Bowhunter. Um, yeah. So there's, there's, there's some good ones. Like I, Aaron Warbritton, uh, he was fun. He was fun to talk to. He was, yeah, he just got, he's like, so, I don't know, unique, but his big thing that he kept going back to, like every like 20 minutes was like, don't overcomplicate it. <laughs> it's like fresh sign, fresh piss, fresh scrape, sit it. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I, I swear sometimes like you were to just pull somebody off the street there's not all that bias in their mind already, you know, and they would just be like, all right, I'm just going to go find the deer and wherever they are, that's where, where they are. And that's where I'm going to hunt. You know what I mean? It's not <laughs> cool, but like, there's so many background things going on in your mind, all this info and content you've been taking in, you're trying to process it all. And sometimes it's, just, it's too much. You can overthink it. And you, you know, <laughs> you, get up, you get your stand set up, you're sitting in your screen and you're like, why am I even sitting here? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Oh, dude, I found myself, um, I found myself in a similar situation like that the other day, but it actually, it actually worked out anyway. So, um, I've already hit record. So Shane, tell people <laughs> that was Shane just talking, tell, uh, <laughs> tell, tell a little bit, tell people a little bit about yourself. So they know like what's all going on right now. Sure. Uh, my name's Shane Buttonary. Um, I'm bow hunter typically you know mostly hunt for for whitetails um i'm from ontario canada um in the southwest portion of the province um the 
kind of habitat that I typically hunt is mostly there's a lot of ag country, small woodlots, um, marshes, swamps. Some of the bigger public areas I hunt are like, you know, get up into the thousands of acres, but a lot of it is like somewhere between, you know, 50 and, and 200 acres or something like that. So, and then the, the piece of private that I hunt is only like 20 acres. So yeah, I hunt a pretty good variety of, uh, of different uh, parcels, uh, mostly public land. I hunt probably 95% public land. Um, yeah, I've been bow hunting since I was probably 15 years old and uh, hunt with a recurve bow. Um, yeah, and then I guess professionally, I'm, I'm a, a biologist. So I do a lot of wildlife oh, nice. biology work and botany work and stuff like that for, uh, for an environmental consulting company. So um, I'm lucky to, to spend a lot of time in the field in an area that has a very high deer density. Um, nice. It's sort of a, a park within a city setting. So, you know, there's no, no hunting pressure or anything like that. And they're pretty habituated to humans. So I take advantage of that when I'm working a lot to, to learn. I, I learn a ton, even though I can't hunt right in that area. I, you know, every day I can see what the deer are doing in that time frame, kind of what patterns they're following, um, you know, just getting to know their habits and, and stuff because, you know, they are a little bit of different deer in that unpressured setting, but, you know, to a certain extent, deer are deer and they're going to, you know, have the same food sources and, and still bed away from, from any pressure that they do get and stuff like that. So. Nah, that's pretty sweet. Um, so then just i guess we should i, I kind of want that's a good lead-in because i um do you hear a lot of like vocalizations going on because calling is one of the topics i wanted to cover for anybody listening we're covering the pre-rut and the rut today definitely part of the deer vein whitetail series and um yeah shane's our you're our you're my only canada guest i have squared away so far so you know you're that unicorn <laughs> um <The token> canadian <laughs> yeah canadian i suppose yeah the token canadian um but uh and then also just real quick i got parker like quote unquote co-hosting i don't know if he's gonna join in or not or what but <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah doing all these podcasts i find myself um kind of running out of ideas sometimes when i'm talking and like talking about the pre-rut and the rut to 15 people in a row, I start to like think in my own head, like I've already asked that question, but I haven't asked this guest their perspective on that question. You know what I mean? So I, I'm, I'm happy that Parker joined because he gives another perspective, another way to think about things. Um, but, but regardless of that, vocalizations, do you hear, do you get to hear a lot of that stuff? Because that's something that really in, interests me, especially during the pre-rut and then even more so the rut. Um, it's, it's rare. It, it is very rare. Even, you know, even in that setting where I see a lot of deer, it is still rare. I did for the very first time actually hear, uh, a big dominant buck, uh, in an area snort wheezed at another buck. Um, okay. was, I think first or second week of November. Um, but that's the only time I've ever heard a snort wheeze. I do, um, I have heard them grunt, you know, a few times, but it's, it, it is pretty rare, but I will say when I'm out working or something like that, and I'll see one 
kind of skirting the edge of a field and I'm not too far off and I think it could potentially hear me. Sometimes, you know, I'll duck down and I work in, in the tall grass prairies a lot. So really high, high weeds and that. So I'll just duck down and, and kind of do some, some grunts with, with, with my mouth. And, um, a lot of times I get a response. They'll come up close, they'll check you out and, uh, you know, eventually they'll take off. But I've had pretty good luck in that setting, grunting uh, bucks in and also also hunting as well, even on pretty heavily pressured public land. I think it depends on, depends on the time period and, you know, how, how pressured the deer are. But if they're, if you get the right deer in the right, you know, situation, I've had a great encounter a couple of years ago with a, a mature buck on public land that was just, you know, we we're interacting back and forth. Like, yeah, I was grunting and it would come in closer, come in to check me out, and then it would kind of circle around and I grunt again, and it would come in again, all bristled up. And it was, yeah, it was pretty neat. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So then, so then, yeah, that was one of the, that was kind of the leading question is, all right, so you hear all these vocalizations, but you, you say it's pretty rare. Um, and those are like unpressured deer kind of like used to humans. Maybe they don't even, they don't have to vocalize so much because they, they know they're all around there and they go check each other every day and they don't have a whole lot of predators. But then on the, on the public, you say it's fairly well pressured. What do you think like in terms of deer density, like, is there a lot or a few? Cause I feel like that has something to do with the vocalizations as well. Um, I would say fairly high comparative to maybe say like a, a big wood setting or something like that. Okay. Not as high as, um, as some other states. Like I live really close to the border of Michigan and, and I've crossed over there plenty of times to do whatever, go on vacation trips or whatever. And, um, I see just a ton of deer, you know, mostly does, but like, even when you're driving on the highways, it's hard to go down a stretch where you don't see one hit at the side of the road or like, you know, out in the fields in the evening and it's just loaded yeah. with, with those. And I don't see that. Like I was just out glassing. Don't tonight. tell the Michigan guys that because they, <laughs> yeah. they pride themselves on high hunting pressure and no deer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I know the, um, you know, it's tough to mature buck encounters and, and how long they're able to live in, in Michigan is, uh, you know, it, it's tough for them. But I think as far as the deer density goes, they have quite a few deer. Um, but I, I was just out tonight in, in a, at my private spot, uh, you know, driving the roads and glassing in the area. And I saw, I saw three deer that were out feeding actually in the, in a, someone's big front yard that had grass, you know, they're, they're on a green food source right now because all the yeah. beans are, brown and uh, a lot of them are getting harvested and uh, you know those are only the only three deer I saw driving all kinds of roads and glassing my spots like nothing out in in the ag field so um, hmm. it's not a super high density but uh, but I would say like most properties in a good you know in deer habitat have some deer on them and most of the public areas you know they, they vary with the densities but all of them have like have a decent number of deer on them yeah okay so um so with the so that's kind of one topic was vocalizations so in terms of like how those deer densities um what i want to say like correlate to vocalizations 
when you're out there and you see deer and whatnot, like I haven't had a whole lot of luck grunting uh, and snort wheezing deer and Parker, I know you, have you, have you gotten into them doing that or not? I know we try it every year, but it like yeah. rarely works. I feel like it's, I mean, it's like, if you're going to try blind calling, you know, you don't actually see anything. You're just going to throw some calls out and see if it'll attract something kind of lurking. I've not had that good of luck, but it's more like if you can physically see the deer and kind of be able to respond based on how he might react, that's where I've had better luck. It's still not great, but <laughs> yeah, you know, at least there's a chance maybe. Right. And yeah. then Shane, you had, yeah, you had that, that success last year messing around with that one. Anything else going on? Like I say, I think it, it, a lot of it depends on the deer and that specific mode and kind of mood that it's in at the time. But um, yeah, well, actually, I just I just saw a nice uh, nine pointer on public land last weekend, and I it was coming towards me, and then it veered off at about forty yards, which is too far for for me to shoot with my recurve bow. But uh, I tried to grunt it back in, and it didn't, you know even look back it had no no interest whatsoever <laughs> but like i say that one during the rut and that could be just the time period where i think they're more likely to um you know to show some kind of uh reaction to it if it is during the rut and uh and if it's a dominant buck i think that had something to do with it too sure um, especially yeah now that we're talking about it a little bit I feel like it, it depends on that deer's personality it, themselves, but then also a little bit on the scarcity of the does that are in heat at that moment in time. So maybe like that mid pre-rut to later pre-rut when the does are really just starting to pop, maybe at that point, they're a little bit more responsive. And then also at the tail end of the rut, they're a little bit more responsive just because there's, there's less, there's less does to go around. Right. So they're kind of like more aggressive in those time frames. But I don't know. That's just a that's a hundred percent. And I do think if it's one of the only mature bucks in an area and the, the grunt call that I use, it's like a pretty has a pretty deep tone to it. And I think if it's a mature buck, especially on public land where there aren't a ton of mature bucks around and it hears, you know, something else that that sounds like a, a bigger mature deer I think it's at least going to come check it out because it's not used to hearing it's not used to having other bigger bucks around yeah. it's used to being the dominant buck and you know if, if it hears a, a potential challenger then you know I, that gotta could, come over and kick his ass right yeah <laughs> I do find though it to you, you have to be in the right uh right sort of habitat to get a good good reaction from calling as well the thing that that kind of uh hurt me um encounter that i was talking about was it was out in sort of a crp type field and um i was probably i don't know 20 yards in inside of the timber and sort of like um it wasn't a lot of ground cover which you know i i should have i should have known better but uh it got right to the edge of that tree line and it could see throughout the hole. Like it was, like I say, it was a fairly open understory and it was standing behind a big maple tree. And all I could see was its head out at like 15 or 20 yards. And 
I could still, you know, it's still ingrained in my mind. I could see a breath coming out of its nose and everything. And ah, uh, that's cool. Yeah, it got me got me worked up. That's for sure. And it, and it turned ended up turning around and walked off. But I think that was because, you know, it was looking from that thicker cover into more open understory, and it didn't see another deer, so it kind of got suspicious and eventually took off. But it never spooked or anything like that. No, that is a, that is a very good point. And one that is seldom brought up is that habitat piece. Um, they talk about it a lot in elk hunting podcasts. They, um, one, one guy, I forget his name describes it. Maybe it's the elk nut, but describe or Corey Jacobson. It's one or the other, but they describe it as like the doorway principle. Like if you hear something odd in your kitchen, you're going to walk to the doorway of your kitchen and look into the kitchen you're not going to walk to the stove, right? You're going to walk and you're going to look, and then you're going to turn around. If you don't see anything, go sit, sit your ass back on the couch. And that's the same thing with like, with deer and elk is they walk to where they can see it all, or they could smell it all. And then if it's, there's nothing there, like, why would I go another 30 yards? Right. And I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And for people who are really mobile during the rut and the pre-rut, and you have that opportunity, I think it's a great point to make, which is try to set yourself up for a scenario where when they can see the area where you're calling from, you can shoot them, right? You're in range so that they can't just like see you and see nothing and walk away, right? That's a great point. Um, one of the other things, have you ever, so like if he came to that edge, one of the other things we've been talking about is decoys. Like have you ever considered using a decoy? Have you ever used a decoy? I've heard people talk about them and we've talked about them on the podcast already, but tell me about that. I, I never really use decoys. Um, I think because I hunt mostly public land, I, I guess I haven't really gave them a fair test, but it just seems like I've kind of been turned away from doing too much calling or sense or putting out a decoy or anything like that on, on public land, because I think it depends on the situation, but you have a pretty high risk of, of spooking something. And I just like to, I like to get into shooting range of just like, just in a natural way, almost, you know, like, sure. I, although I have had the idea that, you know, one of the spots, public spots that I hunt, um, goes up against some really nice private, I always see <laughs> mature bucks on. And, um, you know, I don't think anybody hunts it because it seems like all of the deer from the public end up over there during, uh, <laughs> during the hunting season. And I'm watching these bucks go back and forth. So I've, uh, and it's across a river. So I've considered bringing, I mean, it's a, it's a river that the deer regularly cross. So, um, I think it would be doable, but I'd like to put a decoy on this side of the river, on my side of the river, do some calling and potentially, uh, bring some over, but, uh, I haven't tried it yet. Maybe, maybe this year. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm in the same boat. Like, uh, Mike Hunsucker from Heartland Bowhunter talked to him the other week and he, he's all about it. He's like, dude, you have to, it's like the coolest thing ever when you, when he's, when you get it out there and a buck comes in and they just mess up the decoy or they, you know, come 300 yards away. And he, and his, his big point was you want to set it in, in during the rut, you want to set it in an odd spot, like in the middle of a field, because bucks, you always see them out in the middle of these field, like tending their doe and keeping all these other deer away. 
So you want to like pick that one lone tree in the middle of the ag field and set that decoy so that they can be seen from all around and other bucks pop out into that field. And they're like, why is that buck out there? He must have a hot dough. Let's go try to, let's go try to take that, <laughs> you know? Um, but, but yeah, it's something that I, I actually really want to try this year too. I got to at first decide like, okay, am I going to get, you know, the full body decoy type deal or am I going to get like the Montana cardboard that you just, you know, fold, fold open and sit down. What's that? Like a silhouette. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'd be a lot more likely to bring something like that out in the woods. <laughs> right. So, I think a lot of times the full size decoy would be left at the truck just because I didn't feel like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not hauling that thing a mile back or whatever. <laughs> Shane, do you hunt mostly? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Do you, do you hunt mostly up in a tree or on the ground? Yeah, I do. I do um, occasionally sit on the ground, but um, most of my hunting is from a tree and I just got a saddle this year. I've gotten to hunt out of, well, I did a, a bunch of practicing with it before season opened, but I've gotten six or seven sits in it so far and um, I'm loving it. I'm really, yeah. really liking it. Yeah. Super happy with it because I mean, I, I cut down my climbing sticks as well. So they're more, just more portable. You know, I'm able to yeah. slip, put them horizontally in my pack and slip through any kind of thick brush, uh, the lighter. And then I've got my saddle on. And I think probably uh, four or five out of those six or seven sits, I, I set up in a tree that I really don't think I would have been able to get a stand in. And yeah. Um, just the versatility of trees you're able to get in, I think, because I'm typically hunting in pretty, pretty brushy, pretty thick areas. And a lot of times there aren't very big mature trees to set up in. So a lot of times I'm just in like, you know, four, six inch diameter uh, trees, <laughs> you know, six to 10 feet off the ground. And um, yeah, I've, I mean, I've seen, seen deer almost every sit and, uh, you know, none of them pick me out. And it just seems like those are the spots that you have to be set up, uh, especially on, on pressured public land, you know, like you're not getting a lot of people setting up in spots like that. So I think that's where, where a saddle, um, you know, really comes in handy. Out. Yeah. Yeah. No, Parker's the odd man out. I run, I've run a saddle for the last three years now. Um, and I've been same, same boat. Like I've been really happy with it and just, it's kind of the whole reason why you switch to a hang on from a climber is more vis versatility in the trees that you can get into, you know, cause a climber, you need a straight branchless tree, right? And then a hang on, you can use your sticks and the hang on, you don't have to, you can kind of get into, you know, the majority of the trees and a saddle allows you to get in even more for the most part. Um, but there are still times like I still have my lone wolf set up. And I'll still like, there are trees that just set up better for a stand than a saddle sometimes. So I'll take the, I'll take the stand in there, but yeah, for the most part, I'm in the same boat. I run the muddy pro six and an arrow hunter saddle. And, and that's like my mobile setup. Um, one of the other things that you do that's like, so saddle hunting is a little interesting, but you, you make your own bows, right? Yeah. 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 That's um, cool. Yeah, I've been, been building bows for well quite a while. Um, I kind of got into it when I was younger, and I took a bit of a 
a break from it, just time, time constraints and that, but uh, I've gotten back into it this past year or so. And uh, yeah, I've been building quite a few bows. I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to, you know, get a deer with, with one this year. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see there. Most of them are, are Osage orange self bows. And um, yeah, I got one set up over there with uh, some Sitka spruce wood arrows and some old um, bear razor heads, some of the, you know, tan greenish colored ones. Yeah. Uh, nice. Yeah. I could be really cool to, to harvest a deer with that. <laughs> For do sure. You, do you only hunt with recurve then? Or only bow hunt at least? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't even really hunt much with a gun, but um, yeah, all traditional. I've, I shot one deer when I was my first deer when I was like 15 years old, I shot with a compound and then I've just been shooting traditional bows ever since. It's nice. just a lot of fun. I enjoy it more, oh, but yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I don't find that it really limits my opportunities, but I can think of, of two times where once when I was grunting to that buck I was talking about, and I probably could have shot that deer if I had a compound. Um, yeah. And then one other time I had this really cool, uh, Know, not typical had five points on one side and the other antler just kind of drooped completely down and it was just a big tangled mess and uh, it was because this one back hoop was was injured it was almost missing the, the entire hoop and i think that made the the side of the the antler uh grow in that non-typical huh. and it it was during the rut and that thing passed by me at probably 35 yards broadside like it would have been an easy shot with a compound that took so much restraint not to not to fling and throw at it with my recurve but you know 35 is just the touch out if it's a perfect scenario you know like high 20s maybe 30 yards i'll take a shot but typically i've shot most of my deer at like 15 yards or under so then for those scenarios so like i was in this scenario just the other night like I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm looking at these deer trails coming out of a bedding area. I've never been in this spot before, but there's two deer trails and it's a, a, a big rectangular clear cut in the middle of the woods. I don't know how they even picked it. It's so odd on the map, but it's this big rectangular clear cut on, on the, the Southwest corner and the Southeast corner, there are just giant trails going right into this. And it's all shit that's like six feet tall and just a mess. Um, I didn't even consider trying to walk in there. So like, that's how thick it is. And I'm sitting on the outside of that. And I'm like, all right, do I set up? Like there was one tree at like maybe eight yards from one, from like the main trail that comes out of there. And then there was another one that I could get into that was about like 30 so I chose to set up on the 30 yard tree just cause I didn't want to get like so close that I was like on top of them. But so one of my questions is, is being like being limited with range like that, you know, I, obviously I'm, I'm very comfortable shooting 30 yards at that opening, but for, for you, how are you, is there any extra thought you put into getting that close like how high you're getting in the tree or how much brush there needs to be on the tree or how does that thought process work yeah my cover is a big thing um especially background cover like you really don't want to be silhouetted when you're when you're that close to them um 
I, I really haven't had that much of an issue of deer either seeing me or smelling me. And obviously it's, it's all depends on the wind and, and yeah. some that smell you. And I think if it's on a calm day, there's a better chance, uh, you know, especially in the evening when the thermals are kind of falling and uh, there's probably a better chance of a deer smelling you closer to your stand. But I've had so many walk right under my stand you know, I'm pretty much always going for that. If I had the option, I'd pick that eight yard tree every time. I like to be <laughs> right on top of them. Be, you know, that yeah. less chance of a mistake for my shot, but also uh, it's just exciting, you know? Yeah. Okay. No, I just, I've always, I always worry that I'm like almost like too close and they're going to pick me. Um, but then I, I have times where they like come up and smell your tree sticks, you know, <laughs> and they're just like sitting there looking at them. Yeah, I think that cover is huge. Cover, okay. Like I say, behind you, all around you. Like, I'm, I'm, when I'm setting up in these smaller, brushy trees, sometimes like it's, it's not like I can shoot 360 degrees around me. It's usually like I'm in some pretty thick brush and and in some some branches and that a fork in the tree or something, and I might have like two small little shooting windows or something like that and. And, you know, hopefully it lines up exactly where the trail is or where you expect the deer to come from. But, um, yeah, I'm typically getting into some pretty, some pretty brushy trees. Um, and I think that goes a long way, but, and like yeah. I say, background cover, I think is huge. Last year I was, um, I was hunting a spot and it was later on in the year. Um, but I was set up on some oak trees and they hold their leaves a little longer. So there was a big, big oak tree behind me and I was in this like completely bare, black walnut tree no branches in it or anything and I wasn't that high off the ground but I had that that big oak behind me that had leaves and I had two does you know look directly through me they were like underneath my stand you know almost touching the tree that I was set up in and they looked straight up and um you know they didn't they didn't see me at all so uh, I think huh. background cover is huge yeah that's that's a great point I think the other good point you made there without kind of explicitly saying it is that a lot of people, like, I don't know what it is. It's, I think it's like a, a, a just like a, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like people who want like the fastest car or the biggest engine. Like people always talk about, I get 30 feet up in the tree. I get 25 feet. I get, well, I get 35 feet. Like, you know, and they get like, like height is the big, you know, thing to do. But I think the point that you made and it's, and it's been very true in almost all my hunting scenarios is it's not about the height at all. It's about where your shooting lanes are. And that's, that's the biggest point. Like I bring four sticks into the woods with me and, and half the time I only use three. Sometimes I use two and sometimes I use four. You know, I guess it, for me, it all depends on as I'm climbing, I'm looking around going, okay, can I shoot that? Or can I not shoot that? You know, and especially on public in, in Wisconsin, at least you can't trim lanes. So it's not like I can set up and then go cut everything down um, that I need to cut down. It's like, it's a, it's a game of how, where, where you need to be very specifically so that you get those lanes. Cause if you can't shoot them, then what the hell's the point of being 25 feet up? 
Yeah, I agree. I, I hear people talk about it too. Like you say, it's, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's almost like it's an ego thing. Like the higher you go, <laughs> the better or something. But, it per, uh, yeah. And it persists very highly in the saddle hunting community. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, really? That's surprising. I've never. Dude, I, dude, you see guys that it's like, I have two sticks and an eighter and I get 35 feet up. And I'm like, I, wow. I have no, okay, that's cool. I, I have absolutely, literally, I have never wanted, most of the time I get four sticks up and I start losing shooting lanes. And I'm like, really? I got to drop down just to gain lanes. You know, mm-hmm. I have never been in a situation in Wisconsin where I'm like, dude, I need to get 30 feet up. <laughs> yeah. I've carried four sticks with me too. And they're, they're actually like many, they're only 18 inches. I cut my lone wolf sticks. Yeah. Half, and I, every time I've gone out this year, I haven't used all four of them. Right. Well, yeah. If you're only six feet up, (laughs) right. I hope you're not. (laughs) I think there are certain times where getting higher up in a tree can, can be beneficial. Like say, if you need to get higher where there's cover or certain situations, you know, if you find that your wind, sometimes it changes from that lower, lower height. If you get up higher, sometimes the, um, you know, the, the wind currents are completely different up there. Yep. And, uh, if you find deer always smelling you and you go up, you know, sometimes five or 10 feet, then uh, it can really help out. But for the most part, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to set up, <laughs> you know, pretty low. No. And I think like, I, I make fun of those guys that are, that are getting up, you know, that high in a tree, but at the same time, there are scenarios when you see their photos of like the woods they hunt, it's all just like, naked straight trees like then yeah sure like if you have zero cover then get Mm -hmm. up there but it's just not it's just not a reality in my experience yeah i guess that's just typically not a a type of habitat that i would typically hunt in. Um, yeah at least not in my area like i just don't see deer moving through open woodlands like that um during daylight hours you know so it's just simply not not where i hunt but um you know, I, I, like I say, I'm not opposed to setting up high or low. I think it really depends on the situation. But for the most part, I find that the most deer density and, you know, bucks wanting to be in that security cover. And I just find that a lot of times there aren't very big trees around to set up in. So. Right. Yeah. But getting that little height, height just gives you a little bit of an advantage. So you can see a little bit further and you get a little bit better angles. um going back to that uh, go ahead before i forget going back to that calling uh we were talking about um if i'm set up in like a low brush tree like that and there are some some branches around me i have had some luck you know never with uh with a mature buck i don't know if that's coincidence like they just weren't around or 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 what but i've had some luck um grunting doing a grunting sequence and then really shaking branches and rustling brush around in my tree um i just think it it adds a bit to the the realism of the calling sequence yeah um i think it's not you know you hear a buck in the woods and they're loud like it's not like they're they're sneaking through the bush like a you know like a bear or something would they're they're pretty loud especially when they're making rubs or scrapes you know they make noise when they're doing it and i think it's pretty unnatural for a deer just to hear 
just a lone grunt with no other noises going on. It's, it's got a, you know, it's just not something they probably hear very often. So it's, mm-hmm. it's got to alert them. You know? mm-hmm. I have you been I able to, Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Have you been able to like tell a difference, right? If you're going to do any kind of calling, whether you're up in a tree, if, if height matters, or if you've had better luck calling right on the ground at all, or. Um, I haven't really noticed. Um, I think depends how, how, like if there's a deer, you know, in, in, that's in a pretty open setting, like an open woodland we were talking about and you're way up in a tree and you start calling from up there. Well, it may be able to, it may be able to pinpoint more, but if I'm in some pretty thick, thick cover and I, I don't think they can really pinpoint where the noise is exactly coming from, I, I don't think it really makes much of a difference unless they're right on top of you sure they can pinpoint where it's coming from but what about rattling do you do do you rattle often i forgot to ask that question yeah i i really have have toned back my rattling in in the past few years um i just haven't had luck with it on public land bringing in mature deer i've had you know a few few really close encounters with small bucks um but I've, I've never had, I've never had a good, bigger, mature buck come into, to rattling. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've never had it be successful for me either. Parker. Yeah. I've called in a few, I mean, nothing like, like you say, nothing real big and mature, but called in a few mediocre size, I guess, mid size. Yeah. No, I feel like, I feel like this year, like at least, I got to give it an, I got to get it, give it an honest effort, like during the rut for half a day, like Mm -hmm. calling decoy and rattling. I got to give it a try just to say I did it and then say, yeah, it's going to fail, but I got to try it because it might work who, I mean, I don't know. And I think, I think it depends on all those different scenarios that we talked about earlier, but jumping back to your point about getting into those thicker areas with thicker brush. And that's where you find those mature deer like are you hunting close are you like trying to get near bedding areas in that thicker brush or are those is that thicker brush just naturally a bedding area or like are there scrapes around or rubs around that you're keying in on or or how are you getting to those locations yeah i mean it's always going to correlate with some kind of of either historic data or fresh sign like i pretty much gotten to the point where I've I know enough areas and I've experienced enough where I'm really not gonna even hunt a spot if I don't have pretty high confidence in it and I don't see the sign around directly on the ground that's fresh you know that would that would tell me that I should be hunting here um what is that sign I really like to see a fresh some fresh tracks um you know, depending on the time of year, if it's pre-rut, a scrape or a scrape line or like a cluster of scrapes um, with some really worked in licking branches that you can tell have been snapped off over over a few years and they're used regularly. Um, if I find a spot like that close to bedding, close to really thick, you know, thick security cover, which is probably going to be a bedding area, um, I will, yeah, I'll, I'll hunt over that for sure. Um, that's a good point that I want to, I just want to chime in real quick on that because 
I think it's important to note that those annual scrapes that are there year over year over year are, are more successful and they have more deer activity than just those one-offs. So to your point, like you just said, if you find those scrapes and the branches that are broke off are clearly have been broke off over years. And it seems like they're just like getting shaved down and down and down versus one that's broken. It's like green, brand new. And it's, you know, a green branch. I feel like, you know, if I had the choice, I'm hunting the one that's been used year over year over year and not that just that one off or that brand new one, just because I, that just that other one has a lot more success and a lot more travel over the years. So anyway, I just wanted to chime in on that and make yeah, that definitely. clear. Definitely. I, I would agree with that. And, you know, it still has to show some sign that it's been worked usually if I'm going to you know, commit a hunt to it. But um, I was just hunting last night over two fresh grapes that I found right out about 15 yards, 20 yards outside of two bedding areas that kind of converged and, and came out to a point. And there's, I've noticed there's always four or five scrapes in this, uh, this hawthorn thicket right outside of the, that thicker bedding area. And um, they were freshly worked and I didn't end up seeing a buck, but I did see two does um, come out and both of them, both of them stopped by and smelled the licking branch um, on their way out of, of the cover, you know? So, and, and like I said, when I'm working in the field in these areas with higher deer densities, um, I'm noticing I'm noticing deer, there's fresh tracks in these, in these, uh, you know, community scrapes that are used year after year, all year round. And, and I notice deer checking them out all year round. I find they'll go up and they'll smell the licking branch. And unless it's, but unless it's, you know, in that pre-rut, rut time period, a lot of times they won't actually work the, the ground, you know, scrape the soil. Um, but they do, you know, always check out that licking branch. It's mm -hmm. just like, it's just a community, you know, check-in spot, I think. And, and they just, you know, and they're so habituated to just, they're usually along frequented trails or just outside of bedding yeah. areas. And they're so used to going past that area. They just, you know, they just always stop and, and smell it just because I think it's and, you know, <clears throat> And then as, you know, as the rut picks up and they start to get worked a lot more by, by, uh, by bucks specifically, and the ground starts to get torn up a bit. Um, and I found like I was, we were just talking quick before the podcast, um, the spot I shot my buck last year, it wasn't even into that really that typical pre-rut or rut period. It was October 17th. And I walked in on this piece and I found, you know, like a whole line of scrapes along the field edge in this thick bedding area, kind of a butts right up against this, this soybean field. And I was walking the field in and there's overhanging branches of pin oaks along the edge of the field. And there was like, you know, six or eight scrapes right in a row along that field edge. And um, also the year before I shoot a deer, but I, as I was walking in, I saw a really, really nice buck, um, that I spooked off as I was walking in right in that same area. And both times it was October 17th and 18th, which is sort of before that time period where you really expect deer to do, be doing, you know, a lot of scraping or, or being close to bedding areas. But, um, 
I think even before the, the rut starts, they're starting to, they're starting to assess the doe, uh, the doe population, that area, um, you know, see if any other bucks are around. And even if they're not, I think they're staging up closer and closer to those bedding areas, those doe bedding areas as the rut approaches. And I think it's, it's, it, you know, if, if, anybody notices, you know, a doe bedding area that doesn't typically have a lot of bucks on it, but start to see scrapes pop up in that mid-October time period, I would hop right on that. And I would, I would be hunting, you know, directly over those scrapes because I can, you can pretty much guarantee those bucks aren't too far away. Yeah. That seems to be a, a common theme going on here is don't overcomplicate things. <laughs> Just if it's, if it's fresh sign and it's early sign, go, I mean, go sit it, especially because that fresh sign is far and few between right now. Right. So that uh, October, like 10th to the 20th time frame, when scrapes are really just start, start opening up, there's not a whole lot of them. Right. So like where they are is where the deer are right now. When you get into like that late October, early November timeframe, it seems like scrapes are just like all over the place. And so there's, there's a lot more options out there. So the deer aren't, I mean, it's a little confusing to the hunter and the deer kind of, they know where they're going to go, but they still, I mean, they can make them kind of like rubs, just like, ah, I think I'm going to make one here. This is a decent spot. Maybe I'll just try this and see if a doe comes and pisses on this one and I can get on her, you know? Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's a great, a great way to go about it. Um, do you ever do any of the, any mock scrapes on the public? I have to get, um, to get trail camera photos. I'll set up a trail camera over them and I will get, I will get bucks visiting them. Um, it's not something I'll typically do to, you know, to hunt over or anything like that, but just to try to get an inventory of the of bucks in that area. I, yeah, I've had success, uh, using mock scrapes okay and i do totally agree with what you said i i'm a lot more likely to hunt directly over sign that i see um you know specifically scrapes and rubs in that early to mid-october time time frame um like you say later on it just you know there's no guarantees where those deer where those bucks will be and i'm more likely to hunt over the closer to doe bedding areas and less over the, uh, the buck sign at that point later on, you know, end of October timeframe, early November. So why do you, why do you swap? Why do you, so in that early timeframe, you're hunting scrapes because they're, you know, they're active and they're open and there's not a lot of them. And then you switch to hunting doe bedding areas. Why do you do that? I just think, you know, that's, that's going to be their ultimate destination, um, for bucks it, it are those does, you know, um, it's almost like, like that's where they're going to, to try to end up, you know, they're yeah. looking for a hot doe. That's, that's their destination. It's almost like, you know, ag fields are destination food source, you know, they're going to end up there at some point. Um, except a lot of times they end up there at night, whereas, you know, go bedding areas, um, that, that is their ultimate destination. And, um, you know, there's a better chance you're going to get on them during the day. Um, what I've, 
I've kind of transitioned to um, hunting a little more open doe bedding areas, like right during the rut that are in a more open setting. I think you were talking about it earlier, um, just in open fields where, where bucks will push those does to. But um, I hunt a few spots now where, you know, you wouldn't ex look at it and expect it to be great deer habitat. Um, and there aren't always deer in it, but I find during the rut, um, bucks, yeah, I, I see a lot of mature bucks in this one particular area and it, it's pretty much just an open grassy kind of wet area and it has clusters of dogwoods, um, willows and stuff like that in it where, where does will bed. But um, I think that open setting, you know, it's not an area that a lot of people look at as great deer habitat. And um, the other advantage is you can see a long distance. Like, you know, if you're set up right in thick security cover and you can only see 20 yards in all directions around you, well, it's really hard to, really hard to adjust, um, you know, make an observation and adjust your set setup based on that observation. When you're in that thick of a setting, you know, you have yeah. to be right on top of the deer basically. Whereas I've had some pretty good success the past few years setting up in more open areas and you can observe a really long distance and you can see, you know, bucks pushing does, even if they're a hundred yards away, well, you know, you can make, you can either make a move on them right there, then and there, or, um, you know, you can adjust your, your sit for the next day or something like that. But I, I found it sort of just increases my odds of if I'm having a hard time getting on deer and thicker stuff, I'll transition to a little more open habitat and, um, you know, hopefully get my eyes on something at least. Yeah. I, I find myself in that scenario a lot too. And I think a lot of hunters do is kind of like, all right, I need to get to the thickest shit. And then you get in there and you don't see anything, right. Which happens all the time. And people don't talk about it enough. Like you don't see nothing. And then it's like, okay, was I, if you can only see 30 yards, was I only like 50 yards off or was I a hundred yards off or did the, were the deer there and they just didn't move tonight. So I should try this spot again the next time. Like there's all those thoughts that go through your head when you're trying to figure that out and the observation sits can really help. But if you can't see in there, how are you ever going to figure that out? So I think, I think the way like I've done it and for right or wrong is I just walk into that bedding area <laughs> and if I if I kick the deer out of there and I generally will do that like I like to use gun season in Wisconsin which is like late November as kind of like a scouting mission with with a gun so if I do jump something I have the opportunity or at least I have a chance to shoot it whereas with a bow you really don't have a chance um but I'll do that or I'll just wait until season's over in like February or March and I'll go in there and, and jump them out of there and figure out, okay, are they actually here or not? Am I wasting my time here or not? And you can figure that out a lot. Um, but in season, you know, if you're hunting a new area and you're trying to figure it out, that's always one of the toughest questions. It's like, God, are there actually deer here or not? And I think it goes back to your points of, are there fresh tracks? Are there fresh scrapes? Are there even fresh rubs in the area? Um, Cause fresh rub, like I'm not a huge fan of rubs personally. Like I don't do, like, I like them. They're cool. And I, but I just don't, I don't see them as like a dependable source to hunt or anything like that. Um, unless there's like a real specific, like 
like you look down a trail and there's like four rubs along a trail and it goes into a really thick area, then yeah, that makes a lot of sense because that's a, that's a trail that a buck takes into like a bedding area into and out of a bedding area. And then that piques my interest a little bit, but otherwise if I'm just like walking along a field and I see rubs, like it doesn't, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. Yeah. But finding that, yeah. Finding that sign is the only way I can ever really say that there's either deer here or not. And then to your point again, is if there's not, I'll back out and I'll find try to find a place that I can sit. That's that I can see a hundred yards and be like, all right, are they here or not? And you can figure that out pretty quick when you can see that far. Yeah. To me, rubs are a good gauge that there are bucks, you know, at least in that area and, and they're, you know, that's some sign that, and you can usually, you know, get, have a rough estimate of the size of the deer by the rub. I mean, if it's a really small, small sapling, you know, then it, I guess it could be, could be a young buck or an older buck. If it's higher up on the, the tree, it's usually an older one, but it, you know, most times if you see like, you know, thigh sized or bigger cedars or something that are just completely, you know, the bark is completely torn up. You can bet it's a decent deer. Um, so they give me a gauge of what's in the area, but I rarely, like you say, I'll rarely like sit over them unless those rubs correlate with, um, you know, like a trail coming out of bedding with fresh tracks on that trail, you know, then sure, you know, but just rubs alone, especially if they're not super, super fresh, um, yeah, I don't put a whole lot of stock in, in hunting directly over them. Yeah. Yeah. Parker, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm kind of the same. I use them more as like a, like an indicator, right? Is there a, is there a big deer in the area? But at the same time, even if I don't see rubs, I don't rule it out, right? I mean, trust more on maybe trail cameras or just physically sitting and watching if it's like a historical spot. Yeah. And you tried, Parker, you tried a horizontal rub this year. Have you gotten anything on that? Yeah. I haven't even looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been meaning I got to move. Uh, I got to move like all of my cameras. I have them all on just, well, most of them are pointing just straight at food sources right now. I got to start readjusting. I got scrapes popping up freaking everywhere. And yeah, I I've, did move one under that. Uh, I made that scrape tree or whatever, that mock scrape tree. Oh yeah. I did move one pointing at that and I checked that this past weekend. There was a lot of activity on that actually. What do you mean a mock? Like you planted a tree in a field? I dug a hole and literally had an old telephone pole laying around that I literally stuffed it down in this hole and filled it in. And then I drilled holes in that and stuck branches out. And it's in the middle of like or it's right in between two food plots that are touching so it's in like the wide open like there's no other trees really even that close by that they could scrape so they've been hammering that pretty good but a lot of a lot of small stuff nothing nothing real big i think yeah i think that's shane you've been mentioning like october 17th and october 18th like i have i've had multiple cameras in the piece of public that i hunt that like that have small bucks up until like the 21st and then the 21st to like the 25th I get a bunch of good bucks and then I get small bucks again like it seems like that is a pattern around here and I don't know exactly what it is every year 
but it seems like those few days are good and those earlier days aren't and maybe because you're further north or maybe it's just your area but that that 17th and 18th is the time frame for you which is only four days away so i mean man you got to be chomping at the bit dude yeah yeah you can bet um i mean i i think both i look back at the historical weather data and when i well what i know when i shot my buck it was a northwest wind and i think the year before when i had that other encounter with the buck i think it was a northwest wind as well so yeah you can bet as as soon as i get a northwest wind and i think i think there's going to be one coming with a a small cold front here on friday i'm going to be sitting that spot uh yeah for sure (laughs) yeah dude i'd be really interested to uh i'm going to follow your story you got to post on that because um i had a friend tell me today he's like Cause we have, we have that cold front coming in on Thursday. So it's hitting you a day after. And he was like, yeah, it's going to be good, but the moon isn't right. So like, I'm not diving in and he's a big moon believer. And he proceeded to show me on Instagram, his, like he was doing a live video with me. He's like, here are pretty much the 30 Pope and Young's I got but it's just my opinion, but I believe in the moon. <laughs> and I was like, well, you got 30 freaking deer on the wall. I suppose I should pay attention. But uh argue with that. <laughs> right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's really hard to argue with that. Um, but he yeah, his thoughts were like, it's a good front and you're you're gonna see deer movement, but he doesn't think like the real big dogs are gonna be on their feet, you know, the masters of the area. Um and so I'm curious to see how it goes because it's going to correlate pretty close to your time frame that you usually see them there. It gives you a northwest wind, and it should be pretty good. Um, he tends he thinks that it's going to be later in the in the month, like the 25th to the 31st. He thinks big big deer are going to die, and he's hunting every day, all day. Yeah, I don't um, I don't follow the moon phases too closely. Um, I, I don't think you know I'm not saying it doesn't have an impact, but you know, there's usually other factors that come before it, like, like weather and stuff like that and historical data and observations, you know, those will probably come ahead of uh, a moon phase for me, but I don't ever, you know, completely count it out. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in the same boat. (laughs) Yeah. I think the moon's one where like, if it happens to line up around other good stuff, it just makes me think the day is going to be that much better. But if like all this other good stuff is happening and the moon sucks, I'm still like, yeah, whatever, it's going to be a good day. I'm going. <laughs> it's just kind of that extra like little bit is how I look at it at least. Yeah. No, I, I just, I don't have a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of experience with it. And I've never really looked at it. And my buddy was like, dude, just go back and look at your trail camera data. Find when your big bucks are in daylight and correlate it to the moon and see how it looks. Um, so I'm, I'm interested on that. And I'm really interested, Parker, Parker has been, been after this buck that he calls Pope. And it seems to like know where Parker sets up because he'll set up and then like, it'll be on the other side of the field and then he'll go set up on the other side of the field and it won't show up. And then the next day it'll show up right under his tree stand and (laughs) then give me the run around. Yeah. But yeah. And it only, it's only there. I mean, do you have any more pictures of him? Cause it's usually that buck has been in the area the last couple of years and he stays in on your property until like October 1st this, through the 5th. And then he's gone this week, this week he's leaving. I'm willing to put money on it. 
<laughs> I got I got pictures of him on the eighth, and then I haven't been back to check that camera, so I don't know. But I've been tracking. I mean, I've been tracking the weather. I've been tracking the moon. I've been tracking when I get him and other shooters in just a big ass Excel sheet. So uh, I can't put a bet. Uh, no, <laughs> like <laughs> nothing. It's so random. I can't figure it out. I don't know. <laughs> How does that wind, the wind play out? Um, it's yeah. I thought the wind was actually going to be the biggest factor with the area that he's in because historically. I've seen with other deer that I've hunted in that area, there's way more movement with a south wind just for, I mean, I think it's due to bedding, but I'm starting to turn away from that theory. <laughs> but he literally like south wind, I won't, we had, we had a week long of souths here just like two or three weeks ago. And I didn't get a single picture of him. at least, you know, on my camera. And I had like two or three cameras back in this area, whether he's going somewhere else and I'm just not getting to my camera. I don't know. But it's just there's been no pattern. <laughs> Have you tried hunting it on like a very almost a almost a really bad wind for you, but a just yeah. soft wind? Have you? Yeah. That's that's been the the ones I've been trying to focus on are essentially where I mean it it kind of is a bad wind for me and essentially thinking that you know he has the advantage and I, I try to slip into a spot where it's it's just enough where I'm hoping to beat him. And that could be where I'm screwing up is it ends up not beating him and he just doesn't show up. <laughs> but uh, those have been the ba- the days that I've been trying to kind of key in on, but I don't know. He's been giving me the runaround. Hmm. Man. Um, so Shane, do you ever back to like the pre-rut and the rut and our, and our guest here, Parker and I can, chat forever and maybe we'll just do a podcast ourselves sometime um but uh aside from the moon phase and the bedding areas and the scrapes um do you hunt do you mainly hunt outside those bedding areas or do you find like pinch points and funnels that you like to key in on as well like during the the actual rut or are you like are you liking those observation where you're kind of figuring where the deer are where they're moving those does and then getting in on them I'm usually keying in pretty, pretty darn close to I mean, can wait, it sorry, like I'm sorry. We lost no you for what. a second there. You're keying in on what? On bedding. Okay. Um, it seems like more and more, I, I guess throughout any time of the year, I'm keying in a little more on, on bedding. Um, but especially, especially yeah, during the rut, um, I will adjust if, you know, if I do see, from my, my tree, if I do see, you know, two, two occurrences of a buck moving through sort of a, a, a funnel area, um, then I'll adjust to, to that movement. But I just think, um, yeah, I, the closer I can be to bedding, I think usually the better. Um, that's where the does are most often going to be. Um, you know, if you get a buck pushing a doe, it's usually pushing them into, you know, a, a thick patch if it is in an open area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How are you finding those bedding areas? Like you said, a lot of it is just, 
it's just putting the work in it. And then once you get to a certain level, then you can, you've gotten enough experiences and you've had enough encounters, then you can sort of start picking them out um, without actually having to visit them. Like, obviously, you know, you still have to visit them to look for that sign and confirm, but um, yeah, it's just, you know, spending time in the field, looking for really thick areas. Um, you know, if you walk through and you're consistently like, I don't know <laughs> how, how many times when I was younger hunting and I would, you know, either be walking into my stand and bump deer on my way in and go right past that to my stand. And instead of, you know, setting up where I'm bumping the deer all the time, I'm going back to my stand where I think I should hunt. Or, you know, the opposite, I'm walking out of my stand in the evening and, you know, whatever, just after dark, um, you're walking out 10 minutes after dark and you're consistently spooking deer somewhere on your way out back to the parking lot. Well, maybe that's, you know, a clue you should <laughs> where you're set where you're set up. And it, it seems like, uh, it seems so obvious, but like we were talking earlier, it's you know, it's, it's hard to, to, to think in those simple terms sometimes, you know, and yeah. you've got really good podcasts like this out and there's so much information you can take in. Um, sometimes those really, really simple things, you don't, you just don't key in on them until, you know, until you do. And then it's like, Oh, you know, I'm an idiot. Why didn't I, I clue in on that? <laughs> earlier? Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. It's, yeah, that overcomplication of things. At the same time, like sometimes those um those those times where you're you're jumping deer out of a certain area all the time, um, dude, it's eh, I I hate to like totally counter the point you just made because sometimes it is so simple and you just need to be there. But other times, like I kept seeing deer, like I would walk a mile back on this piece of public, mile and a half, and I would haul ass and get back there and get into the thick shit and i'd be walking out and i'd jump deer like a quarter mile in from the parking lot almost all the time on my way out so i was like all right i'm putting a camera on this thing and i'm gonna check it i'm gonna you know so the trail is really thick and it's kind of a thick area and it's not really where a lot of people go so i put a camera on it and um my theory was i'm jumping deer but they're all like, I think they're all younger deer. They're does and, and, and small bucks. And I set that camera for, I don't know, I think October 1st to like November 10th. And I didn't get a buck over two and a half years old on it. So it was all like younger deer closer to the parking lot. But at the same time, a lot of people are having trouble just seeing two and a half year old deer. And if that's what you're after, then or does like you're just trying to fill the freezer then hell there's there's the spot right so don't overcomplicate that if you're looking for that three and a half i mean it seems like deer at two and a half years old are, are easier for me to find three and a half are hard and four and a half five and a half six and a half like i see one of them like two to three times a year and that's it you know a buck of that caliber a buck of that age they're just, they're just different. They, they have different patterns. They move differently. And like, they're just, they're hard as hell to find and they, they know it and they don't want to die. <laughs> um, but uh, to your point on the, on the bedding areas, um, 
I, I do think that the best way to do that is really to just walk through them and, and figure out where you're jumping deer. Like, especially in the off season, I did that for two years in a row and it, and it really opened my mind to where these bedding areas were and what they look like. And then like, like the other day when I said I was hunting that kind of clear cut, that was rectangular. It was just so thick. I kind of had a pretty good idea. That was a bedding area. And I did see two does and they both came right out of there and they both worked their way down the line. Just like I thought they were going to. Um, and well, one of them came out of there and one of them came out of a kind of a different area where I wasn't expecting, but it was probably like 30 yards away. And in my brain, I was like, okay, so now I know this is a bedding area. So I'm hunting it on a Southeast wind, which is so odd. And it's just strange in Wisconsin. You rarely get them. So I'm like, okay, so if I do get that North Northwest wind, how can I set up on this? Um, so that the bucks, when they do come in to like cruise this bedding area or check out this bedding area, I can be in position to, to, to get a chance at them. You know, like, how can I, how can I start working on that to figure that out? Um, but yeah, that was kind of that, that's, that was just really eye opening me is just jumping, jumping on those deer and figuring them out. And then, like you said, you just kind of get an eye for it and you start understanding, you know, preferably, especially on public land, you know, do that in the in the off season just so you're not ruining other people's hunts but uh, <laughs> yeah you know it's, it's yes. something to think about but um it it happens but another i guess thing that i look at for identifying bedding areas is um you know it really depends on on the habitat and, and the area that you're in but you there are some things in common and it usually has thick cover um there's usually pretty good um, just browse close by where you know they can stand up in the middle of the day and you know they might not be going out to a food source to a, an apple tree or acorns or eat. sometimes it is but sometimes it can just be enough um, sunlight penetration so that you're getting ground cover so that they can just browse on the you know native vegetation or the the shrubs within that bedding area and then the other thing is usually it's in a, a an area where they have an escape route or multiple escape routes, and um, the the pressure that's going to be you know coming at them it can come from only a limited direction, uh, you know, such as like on a point where mm -hmm. you know most of the the pressure is going to be coming from um, from the the you know. The opening of that point and going out towards towards the end and then if they see that that, uh, that predator or whatever it is coming hunter um, you know they can bail off into, into some thicker cover but um, I think in general those three things and usually in my experience like sometimes it's different in the winter where they're bedding in you know thick cedars or something like that for for thermal cover but for the most part um, at least some sunlight penetration seems to you know seems to be a pretty common thing in, in most of the bedding areas um it, that just creates a you know a thicker a thicker habitat type for that, that mm -hmm. they like to bed in so then during the rut or when i guess i should ask that differently when do you start like sitting these areas all day do you ever do you sit all day do you not sit all day do you sit all day and then change halfway through the day 
Like, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've started sitting all day a lot more um, in the past few years because I've had between my trail cameras and my own personal encounters from being in the stand while hunting, I've seen more. I've seen almost almost every like really mature buck that I've seen, you know, four and a half years or older on public land has been midday between probably 10 and one or something. Um, okay. Yeah. Almost everyone. And, you know, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think uh, most times it hasn't been, they haven't been like alerted and fleeing like somebody's uh, bumped them on the way out of their stand. Most of the time they've been doing their natural sort of life cycle things, you know, like they've been cruising or, uh, you know, obviously downwind of bedding areas looking for does or they've been chasing does and all of that has been, like I say, between that, yeah, probably 10, 10 to one o'clock. And so, you know, if I do sit a lot more full days, but if I'm not going to sit a full day, I'll at least sit from, you know, I'll try and get in before, well before light. And then I'll try and sit till at least one o'clock. And then, you know, if I'm not seeing any action whatsoever, then a lot of times I'll, I'll, you know, quickly move to a different stand and sit that the rest of the night. So, I mean, effectively it's, it is almost an all day sit, but yeah. a lot of times I will sit, you know, one stand all morning till, you know, one or two o'clock and then switch over. Um, but sometimes I will sit the same stand from, from uh, sun up till dark. I think that's something like every hunter goes through when they're sitting there and it hits like nine 30, 10 o'clock. And they're like, I ain't seen shit. What am I going to do? <laughs> like should i move should i not move like i think this is a good spot i don't think this is a good spot like uh, maybe that other spot's better like, i don't know what to do and i and i i go through it all the time too um so you're saying if you don't see anything by your cutoff is one o'clock if you don't see anything you're kind of like all right i'm kind of out of this like i'm gonna go check out somewhere else yeah and even just for a for a mental refresher i mean realistically there's probably i don't know just as good of a chance that you know a hot doe could come by your stand after that time period but just for you know just making it more bearable sitting all day sometimes i just like to, to switch it up um yeah yeah that that, that 11 to 1 o'clock or so i've i've had really really good luck the past few years um seeing mature bucks on their feet moving around between you know the end of october october 31st until about november 3rd or 4th and and that's typically when the gun season starts here in ontario the, the first week of november so which hmm. is a pretty big bummer <laughs> yeah <laughs> really puts a damper on things uh right when the rut's starting to heat up and and i do honestly think we'd have considerably better um you know mature buck ratios and, and better deer populations if it was pushed back another week or two but uh, what can you do <laughs> yeah wisconsin is uh the saturday before thanksgiving so it's usually about like november 20th or so which is really nice it gives us a lot of time to hunt the rut um they considered changing it this year and it was like thoroughly voted down. It was like 80, 80% to 20%. They wanted to start it a week sooner. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't advise that. I, it's just, it's frustrating. Although I have slowly been trying to find areas that are either bow hunting only, or there are some, some spots um, in Ontario that don't have that first uh, week of gun season. And uh, I've been seeing okay. spots in those areas. So, you know, it's worth looking into your local regulations because sometimes there are certain, you know, either areas that are archery only or certain wildlife management units that, um, you know, that where the regulations are different and you can, you can bow hunt all the way through that period. So yeah. Parker, you got that spot you've been talking about. That's yeah, I, I know I found it over the summer and I haven't been back, but it's like, it's just kind of kicking at me it's you cannot access it you can't even go and like walk around it and it's public land but they essentially shut it down after like november 15th or something it's like eagles nesting area or something like that <laughs> i was like man that'd be like ideal but i have no like i literally haven't even been by it i don't know if it just gets pounded this time of year or if it, yeah people just kind of stay away from it there's a, a friend. Of, so I hunted in Alberta, like, I don't know, five, six years ago. And, they, and a friend of mine named Corey Cook, he just posted, um, he's from Canada. He lives in Alberta. And um, he posted that there's like, they have bow, bow zones. So bow, like bow only areas that are just bow only. And it's a live, it's a live hunting show in the bow zone. I don't know how it's going to shake out. I don't like, I can't imagine they're like live stream. I can't imagine there's good enough connection to live stream, but maybe it's like posted every night or after it's like done. I, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes. It's supposed to air on like wild TV and online in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Hmm. There's some, some monster bucks that come out of those bow, bow only zones in, uh, in Alberta. Hmm. Yeah. No, I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in seeing how, how that goes. And like one of the other thing that's pretty interesting um, in Canada. So like, is this how it is in Ontario? And I, I have like, forgive my ignorance. Right. Um, but like, if I wanted to hunt in Ontario, I would either have to hunt with you or with a guide. Right. Or no. Um, I, honestly, I don't know non-resident relations that well, but okay. I don't think you do. I don't think you, you have to, um, okay. not to deer, um, in a lot of the, the different provinces for things like elk and moose, um, bigger game and some, some areas for deer as well. You do, you need a, you need to be with a registered guide. Um, okay. Got it. Or that... a, uh, they also have like, I think it's called a hunter, uh, chaperone or something like that where you're you're hunting directly with a resident yeah that's so in alberta that's what they were saying there i was like man i gotta come back here and like hunt this and they're like well you can't but if you let me hunt with you in wisconsin i'll let you hunt with me up here <laughs> I, was like, I was like all right well that's a fair trade like for sure man um but uh but okay cool so just quickly back, what's that Sorry, before we, we get off the topic of, of the bedding areas, I just want to... Yeah, that's a, I wanted to go back to it anyway. That, um, a lot of times, like I said, these better these bedding areas are 
have a really thick ground layer of vegetation, thick understory um, from that light coming through. And a lot of times it's not easy to read the sign in, in bedding areas because of that, you know, if it's just like a thick mat of, of uh, weedy vegetation or grass, reed canary grass and stuff like that, um, it, it's not obvious, you know, it's not an obvious beaten down mud trail. And I think a lot of people can overlook that type of sign. Um, but, you know, it, it is there. You can see sort of the d depressions in the, the grass and in the vegetation. Um, but just because you don't see, you know, these, these really well-worn beaten down trails right into the mud or, you know, you don't see a lot of fresh tracks in that area. Like sometimes the vegetation type just doesn't allow there for it to, you know, to be that fresh sign for them mm -hmm. to leave. So, um, yeah, that's that's one thing to keep in mind. Like just because you're not seeing that, it doesn't mean deer aren't using that area. And and the more you, you know, the more you look at it, you can see, you know, get down low, and um, you can see just little depressions in the leaf litter or in the the uh, grassy areas where you're not going to see a clear track. But if if you get down low, you can see the shadows in those depressions, and that's deer walking through. <clears throat> Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, for the, um, for where you choose to sit in the morning, like during the rut, you know, you say you sit until like one o'clock and if it doesn't work out, then you move. So I imagine when you get in there in the morning, you're kind of sitting like the entrance or the way into a bedding area. You're like expecting to catch the deer coming back from food and into this bedding area. Right. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'll typically be on the downwind side of it, and and that's either, you know, bucks usually cruise that downwind side to smell for for does, or a lot of times, especially in the morning, those deer, whether it's does or bucks, they'll kind of do a little J hook sort of back into the bedding area, um, and they'll just come from that downwind side so they can smell anything that's potentially in there. So it's usually the downwind side of a bedding area. Yeah. Got it. So then if you don't see anything after that morning sit and after mid morning afternoon sit, are you headed like to a different bedding area? Are you headed to like a travel area to a food source? Are you headed directly to a food source or what are you, where are you going? Usually still, still close to, to a bedding area. Um, like okay. I say in, in public, I just don't see, I don't see like bucks out in, in ag fields chasing does around. I just, I've, you know, I just don't see it. We so, don't, I don't, I don't either. I will, I will hit those, you know, scout those, the edges of those food sources, those ag fields and that, and see what kind of tracks and activity are coming out there. And then maybe I'll start working my way back. And now that I've got this more, more mobile setup with my saddle and, and, and sticks, um, a lot of times they'll just, well, I, I'm never really leaving the set up there. I'm taking it down every time I, I leave. So I've got it on my back. And a lot of times, yeah, I'll have a, an idea of where I want to like a bedding area that is my ultimate destination. And maybe I'll walk a field edge until I see the amount of tracks or the amount of you know a bigger track or the amount of sign coming to the edge of that 
that uh, food source, that ag field or whatever. And then a lot of times with my, you know, my setup on my back, I'll just work my way back following the, that hopefully bigger set of tracks as, be as best as you can um, until I find a spot where, you know, I think I'm getting close enough to bedding where I'll intercept them. Um, but I've just found, yeah, on, especially on public ground, it's like I just try not to ever get too far away from that security cover or close to, to those bedding areas. <clears throat> okay, cool. And especially during during the rut, like I'll I'll be I'll be a lot more careful certain times of the year, like early season. Uh, I you know I'll usually do a few do a hunt further out. You know if I don't see anything, maybe I'll go a little further back, a little further back. Um, because I don't want to potentially blow that area out or let them know that I'm there and take away from that next, you know, two, three, four weeks of hunting that I have up until the rut. But once the rut hits, uh, I mean, I'm still trying to be pretty careful, watch my wind, all that kind of stuff, but I'm being pretty, pretty aggressive. Like, you know, I, I'll just sit if there's a tree to sit right in the middle of that bedding area, at least where I hope, you know, I'm not getting does or something downwind of me, I'll just set up right in the middle of there and get in hopefully before light and just sit it all day. Yeah. No, that's not. Yeah. There's been enough times where I've been a little conservative and I've set up just outside of that thick cover and like, you know, I can hear activity going on in there and, it's just sort of one of those rules that you're, you're always taught that you don't go right into a bedding area. And I don't think you should all the time. Like, you know, it would really take away from, from the hunting on public land if every person was tromping directly through a bedding area, you know, but at certain times, you know, if, if it means getting a shot at, at a buck or not, then I'm going in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think to that end, like, you know, one of the other things I always think about is noise, like the amount of noise you're making. Um, and for that, if it's a natural noise, if it's like a twig breaking or leaves crunching, I'm not really too worried about it. Um, if it's metal clanging on metal, I'm very worried about it. So like, that's how I kind of dis distinguish it. And back to like I keep bringing back up this other hunt that I was just on but when I was walking in there it was decently windy maybe like 10 to 10 to 15 miles an hour so their trees were rustling and stuff but I was just kind of I was walking slowly and quiet-ish as quiet as you can on a bunch of dry leaves right I mean you're walking on dry leaves but at like once I got set up to the shooting lane point there was one shooting lane that I had and there's a big dead branch going across it so I like, it was, I don't know, like seven feet up. So I went up and grabbed it to pull it down. And when I went to pull it down, man, that thing snapped real loud. <laughs> um, I was not expecting that. And I was just like, shit, like, did I just ruin this whole thing? I mean, it was windy. So I was like, well, maybe they hear branches fall all the time. And it, it those two does came right out. So I don't think it mattered at all. But if you're, if you're getting into those bedding areas, it, you try to make as little noise as you can. But if you're, if you're stepping on leaves and breaking twigs, like it's going to alert them, but if they can't smell you and they can't see you, 
you've only like triggered one of their senses and, and it's not going to like totally ruin your hunt. And then if you can get set up without clanking metal on metal, I think you're even better off. And it might even like, to your point earlier, uh, pique their interest and make them curious, like, okay, there was something over here and it was quiet. And then it was, then it was gone. And now it's not here anymore. And it's been an hour. I haven't heard anything else. I, I, I feel pretty safe in here, you know, and then they just go about their business. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I've had experiences, you know, trying to clear out a shooting lane and, and pulling down some dead branches that may make a lot of noise. And I haven't really, I mean, I guess if you don't see, if there was a big buck there and you don't see it, then you don't know, but as far as, <laughs> right. you know what I mean, but I haven't seen an effect, um, affect very many deer. Like I've, I've, yeah, I've broken a lot of, like if I got to clear a shooting lane, I'll break those dead branches down and rather have that shooting lane open rather than, you know, completely block off an area because I haven't really found that it, it, uh, it affected deer movement much. Um, really even to a, you know, a surprising extent, like you say, like pull down a, a, a huge, you know, decent sized branch and it makes a loud cracking noise, something that deer wouldn't typically hear. Um, and, and I've still had deer come out you know yeah nice yeah no i think that's the whole the whole thing with noise is just don't make human noises <laughs> right make that, that funny noise. what's that it's it's like i'm very adamant with the same thing right like i hate the clunking boots any kind of metal clinking swishing pants things like that but this past i think it was last week where i've been hunting in the in the one area for pulp it's been like raining walnuts, right? And these things, I mean, it's loud when they hit the ground. And I've been seeing a lot of deer and they're coming out in this hay field. And just the other day, there was like four or five deer out in this hay field and a walnut, there's, a, there's an old, old fence row right there. And like the fence is all leaned over and like it's a piece of crap, right? But a walnut literally hit one of the fence posts like square on when it hit the ground. And it sounded like a gong, like it was crazy and i was kind of like holy shit you know and i think one deer out in the field kind of picked its head up and looked over and then just went right back to you i was like <laughs> what like not what i expected at all but not saying go you know throw your tree stand out of the tree when you're climbing down at night but some stuff you know right you could probably get away with a little bit more than you think yeah i yeah all, all that being said, I do try to be as quiet as I possibly can, you know, most of the time. And um, I do think access, you know, whether it's it's wind or noise or whether deer can visual, whether they can see you, I do think access is a huge, huge part of the hunt. Like, especially on public land, I you know, I keep saying that, but like in these areas that I know... I know there's a high deer population and, you know, there's quite a few deer around and it still gets hunted hard. You know, those deer are, they just know when a hunter's coming, you know, and if you can do anything, I really like following uh, riverbeds, like getting down to the edge of a, the bank of a river and following that in or doing something yeah. different than, than other hunters do because, you know, there's, 
for how much pressure some of these spots get, you'd think there's, there's no way deer could survive here or be around, but it's just the way that they, they set it up so that they're bedded in an area where, you know, I'm not even, to a certain extent, I'm not even worried about a lot of hunters that, that hunt the same areas as I do, because I know they're going in straight from the parking lot to the, to the, their stand. And I know that, you know, even if they are taking wind into direction into account, which, you know, a lot of people don't even do that, but um, a lot of deer are bedded in a way where they can watch you coming in. So, you know, just doing something different and trying to get in definitely, definitely without letting your scent blow into where you think they're bedding um, as you're accessing your stand. But any unconventional uh, approach to your stand, I think is, is huge. Yeah. I definitely, uh, I, I think that holds true in a lot of scenarios, the unconventional portion of it, but also the, the access of don't just use the four wheel trail that's there. Right. And don't use the trail that everybody else uses. And if you're trying to hunt a spot, that's kind of off one of those areas, figure out a different way to access it. Maybe it's going to suck. Maybe you're walking through tall grass that there is no trail going through it and you're blazing that trail, but at least like you say, it's different. And the deer, uh, you know, one of the things that's really opened my eyes on this, doing this podcast is the amount of stories I hear of people who find deer beds that are watching parking lots. You know, it's like, holy cow, like you don't realize it, but they're, they're definitely out there or watching the four wheel trails, you know? And, and even in the areas that I hunt, like there's, there's railroad tracks that go through a few of the pieces, like different tracks and people access via those railroad tracks all the time. And you can see once you get in there in the winter, like there's some Hills that come up off those railroad tracks and you can see the beds on those hillsides looking at the railroad tracks. Like, that's what they're eyeballing to see. I mean, if a person comes in that way, they're up and over the top and gone. Um, so yeah, just accessing differently, but then, and, and maybe, maybe they will let you get that close if you just like access via the regular four wheel trail. But if you take that route and you bump them or you're just not seeing anything, but you know, the signs there, then figure out a different way to get in. Yeah. And yeah. if it's one of those, like you're saying, a really, really thick bedding area that's hard to get into without making a ton of noise um, or letting them, you know, the deer know that you're approaching. Like sometimes you see these amazing bedding, bedding areas, but you look at them and you're like, how would I ever even hunt that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And if there's a, if that's the, the case in areas like that, I'll usually save it for, I'll usually save it for the rut. Um, and I'll usually just try and get in as early as possible um, before those deer are back in that bedding area. So I'm then I don't really even care how much noise I'm making. I'll just crash through whatever brush I need to get through to get there. Um, and then hopefully you're just back in there early enough where, you know, most of the deer aren't there yet and you're going to catch them coming back in. Um, yeah. you no, know, that's not something I like to do too frequently, but yeah, if it's a great, bedding area and that's the only way to get in well i'll just go in you know be set up in my stand an, an hour before light at least and uh and just just crash through it and not even worry about how much noise you're making if that's sure. your only option it's still better i figure to hunt it than than to not you know 
Right. Do you ever have areas where you go in on gray light in the morning? Like you're like, ah, like I'd rather just like work my way in slowly in case I bump into something, I can shoot it or no. Yeah, sometimes I would say more, more often I'll do that in an area that I'm not really familiar with. And I want to be able to see the lay of the land and look for sign as I'm, I'm going in. Yeah. Um, or, okay. you know, that's a great point. Yeah. Or if I want to do some, some observational type stuff and I'll sort of, you know, drive the roads in the perimeter of the area that I'm hunting in that, that gray light and, and watch if I can see where deer are going back in and then go back to that spot for an evening hunt. Um, I'll do that. But I mean, typically if I know where I'm going and, you know, I'll, I'll try to get in there well before light. Okay, cool. All right, man. Well, we're like, I don't know, somewhere close to an hour and a half. Um, I like Zoom doesn't tell me how, how long we've been recording, just that we are recording, which I consistently look at to make sure that it's still going. <laughs> um, do you have anything else, Parker? Do you have anything to add? Or, or Shane, do you have any like last last comments you'd want to leave anybody with? Shane, if you had to pick three days out of the whole year to hunt you had to pick them in august what would you pick not like hunt in august you just have to pick in august. yeah that's when you have to decide yeah okay if i if i was on if i was on a good deer and i i feel like i i had it pretty patterned at that point you know it, it might be a lot of people don't like hunting um well my season doesn't open until october 1st so um you know, a lot of people don't like hunting mornings in that time period, but, you know, I, I might pick one day at least to be, to be October 1st and I'd hunt it, you know, that morning. And hopefully, hopefully it's still on that buck is still on that fairly regular pattern. Um, I guess my next day would probably be, say November 3rd. Um, I just seem to have a lot of mature buck encounters on that, you know, I guess anytime late October, early November, but it seems like just before our gun season starts um, in that early November period, I, I, I see a lot. And that would be, that would be an all day sit. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it, it's hard not to just want to hunt the rut all the time because it's super exciting. <laughs> but if I had three days, I would probably, I would probably, you know, pick one of the days towards the very end of the season. Our season ends December 31st and, you know, whatever, whatever bucks make it through the season, you can find them. If you can locate one at that point, you know, it's typically a pretty, pretty good time, high success rate to, to get on them uh, moving in daylight. If you can find a good food source, there's some standing beans or something like that. Um, you know, that very tail end of the season can be, can be great. Yep. So yeah, I'd probably pick, pick those three days, spread it out. <laughs> a little variety pack. Yeah. No shit. Yeah. That's cool. That's a good, I mean that, and that's a good way to go about it. Um, I, I do, I've had multiple people tell me like, if you can pattern a buck in the early season, like that's the best time to kill them. Like if you can get that pattern down, 
and figure it out and put a few days in, then, then that's the best time because during the rut, you never know what the hell they're going to do. Right. But at the same time, like the ruts, the rut, man, it's fun. <laughs> like it's exciting. And, and that's part of it is you don't know what they're going to do. And you might have terrible, you might have not terrible, but like only one and a half and two and a half year old deer on trail camera all year. And then November, like second hits and all of a sudden, boom, there's a four and a half year old boom. The next day there's a five and a half year old and your property just lights up that you're hunting. Like you just never know. So that, and that's the beauty of it. So yeah, the rut's always fun. And yeah, a big debate that I always have is during that time period is whether I do sit one spot all day. And because I've, I've had it where this one particular spot where I, I can sit it for days, a few days in a row, and I'll see almost, almost nothing for, for a couple days. But then every year for the past three years that I've sit, sat it at least one day, I've had an encounter with like an exceptional deer public land so that makes me just want to sit there and wait it out but at the same time you know there's always that debate in your mind whether you should do that sit one spot and just because you know something's going to come eventually or do you bounce around you know and hunt different spots every time and i think uh i think if if you can get lucky and you can get on a lot of deer bouncing around but then you can also go the other way and you can yeah. always be at a spot where they're not so uh yeah i think you just got to kind of go with your gut you know, in that sense, but it's fun either way at that time period. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. Cool. I guess just, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. What do you got? What do you got? Last words. Or we wrap it up. Uh, yeah. Like we were saying earlier, keep, especially during the rut, I think keep it simple, keep it super simple, but at the same time, do everything right to put the odds in your favor you know like don't take any shortcuts it's it's the best time of the year you look forward to this time of year you know for all year round and uh you know just keep it simple but at the same time don't take any shortcuts do what, what you should be you know you should be doing uh don't just take a you know an easier way because you know you've been getting up early for the past four or five days and you feel like sleeping in a bit and taking the, the, the lazy route in, just <laughs> keep it simple, but just do everything to a T. And, um, and I think also just, you know, with all this, this talk and, and game, making a game plan, you know, for months ahead of time. And you, this is how you picture it in your mind. This is how it's going to play out. You know, don't get discouraged and um, just remember that, you know, this is the time of year we, we, we look forward to, the entire year you only have so many deer seasons or ruts in your lifetime and you just just enjoy it you know it's it's the best yeah. time to be out in the woods it's mm. you're not you know you can get boring in your tree stand but i just always think you know i'm not at work i'm doing exactly what i want <laughs> to do and uh yeah just enjoy it because it's it's an incredible time to be in the woods and that's probably no other place in the world that'd rather be during that time period than, uh, you know than in the whitetail woods up in a tree stand so it's painful if you're not in a tree stand and it's early november yeah you're like what am i doing with my life right now 
is this money and this job that important? <laughs> no, it's the people that plan weddings around that. Dude, like, what oh are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, it is. That is a terrible decision. I mean, those are those are friendship breakers right there, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be with you in spirit. <laughs> right. Just, yeah, just don't do that. Have your wedding in June or July like everybody else. And call it a day. Maybe August. Mine was in August. That's okay. Not, not November. No. Well, <laughs> I just, I just got married on September 26, and I still managed to make it out for over. <laughs> <laughs> nice man. Yeah, dude. My elk hunt this year. Um, well, yeah. Well, let's just wrap it up because we're just gonna fly into this whole new subject. But hey, everybody, thanks for joining us. I hope you guys really appreciate this. Um, or really found this educational and informational and it's, it's helpful. Definitely reach out to myself if you have any questions or Shane and Shane, what's your, where's, where's the best place for people to find you? Uh, probably Instagram. I spend a decent amount of time on there and my, uh, my username there is just art of bow hunting art underscore of underscore bow hunting. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty active on there. So if you have any, any questions, you want to shoot me a message and that's that's sure cool and uh and i just yeah i really appreciate you guys having me on it was great talking to you and you know you've got some you've got some really you know really exceptional hunters on this series of uh of podcasts so i feel feel honored to be on it for sure oh yeah you bet man i think it's always fun to get totally different perspectives from people who hunt for a living and that's all they do and then you get people who hunt, you know, weekend warriors, right? I, th I think everybody can relate. Not a whole lot of people can relate to people who hunt every single day, but their knowledge base is so much higher because they hunt every single day. And then people can relate to weekend warriors and what's the best way to spend, you know, two days, two evenings hunting every seven days. Like that's, that's a hard topic to cover and hard, like that's hard to hunt. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time. I know it's a little bit late for you. It's a lot later than it is for us. It's almost 11 o'clock your time. So, um, so yeah, if you, if you guys have questions, Oh, be sure to reach out to him to Shane and just ask him how to make a bow. Like that's, that's the best thing, um, to do there and just, just blow his Instagram up with, with how to make a bow and have him teach you that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if you guys enjoyed the podcast, you found it educational, informational, you like it, whatever, please subscribe. And then also leave a review. I'd really appreciate that just because the reviews actually help us like move up in searches. So if people are looking for like deer hunting tips, deer hunting strategies or something like that, that'll help, um, help them find us. All right. Thanks guys. Catch you next time.